A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Before we begin, here's a reminder that as a valued listener to our podcast, you can get a discount subscription to New Scientist using the code POD20. Go to newscientist.com slash POD20 to subscribe and enjoy all the content of the magazine plus audio versions of the stories. Newscientist.com slash pod20 gets you the 20% discount. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Penny Sarche. And I'm your other host, Rowan Hooper. On the show this week, we've got loads of good stuff, actually, and a packed pod. Uh, And in a bit of a food theme... We have breadfruit and sea cucumbers. Yummy, yummy. Uh, sea cucumber. <laughs> yeah. And talking of distasteful things, we've also got this familiar voice. Darth Plages was a dark lord of the Sith, so powerful <laughs> and so wise he could use the force to influence the midichlorians to create life. The reasons for having Donald Trump talking about Star Wars will, will become clear later in the show. Uh, we're also talking about new research on the link between child poverty and health. We've got Space Mystery and uh, William Shatner in space, Captain Kirk in space. The beauty of that color, and it's so thin, and you're through it in an instant. It's a veritable New Scientist news team party in the pod this week. We're joined by London-based reporters Michael LePage and Jason Muragesu, and assistant news editor Chelsea White in Portland, Oregon. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hey. Hi. Right, we're going to start with a climate change story, but this is one about food which is an aspect of climate change we probably don't talk about enough. When we do talk about it, it's usually to warn about crop failures and food shortages that we can expect as global heating increases. But Michael, you've got a positive story here about a food opportunity. That's right. Yeah, so many climate stories are bad news. But Daniel Horton at Northwestern University in the States has been trying to use climate models to find solutions and opportunities and not just the bad stuff that will happen, as he puts it. Mm -hmm. And so it turns out that breadfruit is one of those solutions. Hmm. I saw that the London Borough of Hackney unveiled a breadfruit sculpture this month, celebrating the Windrush migrant workers that came to the UK from the Caribbean. But I have to say, I've never actually tried breadfruit. What is it? So it's a starchy fruit that grows on a tropical tree and it can be eaten raw when it's ripe, but it's usually cooked or, or turned into a flour, hence, hence the name breadfruit. Yeah, I've had it in a, in a curry. It's very nice. Um, but look, why is it a potential solution? So the yields of many staple foods could be already hard hit by global heating. In fact, it's already happening. You might remember that in 2010, Russia banned wheat exports after a heat wave decimated its crops. And that then triggered a price increase that helped spark the Arab Spring. So a pretty serious chain of events. Um, But the great thing about breadfruit is that it's tougher than than crops like uh, wheat. So being a tree, it can withstand short periods of drought. What's more, uh, Horton's team has been doing some climate modelling and they found that bread production will be relatively unaffected as the world keeps getting warmer. So that means most of the places where breadfruit is grown today will still be able to keep growing it up to 2080 and beyond. And what you also found is that there's a really big opportunity in Africa where lots of tropical regions will remain suitable, but hardly any breadfruit is grown there at the moment. So could breadfruit really replace staple crops like wheat? 
Potentially, yes. So it's just as nutritious, if not more so, and it's also really high yielding. So it's actually a bit of a wonder food. Mm. And what's more, uh, team member Lucy Yang was telling me that because it's a tree, it can be grown in a more sustainable way than crops like wheat. So that means lower greenhouse gas emissions. And that's really important because farming is to blame for a third or more of all greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, I've been reading Dan Saladino's book, Eating to Extinction. Uh, I don't know if you've read that. But it's really, really interesting book. And uh, it, it really lays out how homogenous our diets are. And, you know, we eat the narrowest range of foods that we have in human history. And it's bad for our health, uh, but it's also bad for ecology. So, you know, he makes the point that it's really vital to diversify the plants that we farm and we have to do that to make our food supplies more secure. Right, Michael? Absolutely. Yeah. So it's not just about climate, but also disease. So more than half the calories we eat globally come from just three crops. That's wheat, rice and maize. And that means our food supplies are highly vulnerable to diseases such as wheat stem rust. So there's a variant of that spreading around the world. So if we eat more foods like bread fruit, that will help. And it's not just bread fruit, of course. So take quinoa. It's salt tolerant as well as drought tolerant, so it can grow places other crops can't. And and that means, you know, the you know, I think people are sometimes disparaging about quinoa as this trendy crop, but actually it's really great that it's trendy because people are, are buying it and eating it. And obviously yeah. farmers won't buy these crops unless um people want them. And then of course we can even go beyond traditional foods. We can develop whole new foods by domesticating plants that have never been farmed before, but have really desirable characteristics. And a few people are, are trying to do that. Now, let's listen to Donald Trump again, talking about the Sith and the Jedi. But this time, I'm going to tell you that the clip isn't actually Trump, but it's a deep fake. It's a piece of software that that listened to his actual voice and learned how to mimic it. So here you go. Darth Plages was a dark lord of the Sith, so powerful and so wise he could use the force to influence the midichlorians to create life. Now, what do you think of that? Did you spot it was fake even after I told you? It just sounds so realistic, doesn't it? It does. And you can imagine if there's, um, you know, background noise or something added on, it could really be, especially if you don't, you're not thinking about it. And if he's mm. not talking about something daft like the Jedi. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're playing that because deep fake software is getting better and better. And we usually think of it as a visual thing, but it is getting easier to do for audio. And you can just imagine the problems that it could cause. So a couple of years ago, there was this amazing case of fraud where cyber criminals used deep fake audio and they impersonated the boss of an energy firm. So the CEO took a call and was told by his boss to transfer 220,000 euros to a certain account, which he did, but it wasn't really his boss. It was a deep fake AI mimicking him. God, it's just mortifying. Imagine. <laughs> yeah, it's really, uh, really amazing. Uh, ingenious, you know, and probably the first reported piece of audio cybercrime. Uh, and we got a piece in the mag this week looking at how deep fake audio can be used to unlock speaker recognition security systems like the ones used by Alexa uh, and Microsoft Azure and WeChat and so on. So it's all really worrying. Is there anything we can do about it? No, nothing oh, at the moment. I mean, the companies that use that sort of voice recognition say that there are multiple layers of security. So they say they're not hugely worried. And I mean, most people will be secure because cyber criminals might not have recordings of your voice that they would be able to use to train the deep fake software. 
So, you know, it's only if, Penny, maybe your if your voice is available on many hours of freely available podcast or, you know, something like that, then you then you might be in trouble. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, I have to say. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, one cybercrime expert we spoke with said that the realism and accessibility of voice synthesis is only going to improve, bringing with it profound implications for the cybersecurity landscape as our voices increasingly become biometric keys to our digital lives. We'll post a link to that story in the show notes. And thanks to the Vocal Synthesis YouTube channel for letting us use that clip. Time out. Let's take a break to tell you about an upcoming event. Yeah, this is all about sleep. How's your sleep quality? I'd say it's pretty good, but I always feel like I could do with a bit more. Yeah. Oh, okay. This is the event for you then. Um, It's about sleep engineering. Not about sleeping longer necessarily, but about making the most of whatever sleep you get. It's presented by Penelope Lewis, who's a professor of neuroscience at Cardiff University. Her work focuses on sleep engineering. That's the science of manipulating sleep for cognitive and health benefits. And she specifically focuses on how memories are processed during sleep and how we can manipulate this by triggering memory replay. Sleep Engineering, How to Boost Health and Cognition While You Sleep with Penelope Lewis takes place on the 28th of October, 6 till 7pm BST, 1 to 2pm EDT and also on demand online after that. Go to newscientist.com slash sleepengineering to sign up. Now, next up, we're looking at how poverty affects children's health, including their immune systems and brain development. So, Jason, you've been reporting on this for us. The context initially was looking at what will happen in the UK as benefit payments to low-income families were cut this month. But there's also a lot of work being done in the US and other countries, too, on the connections between poverty and health. Yeah, so to the UK first. Um, The government last week stopped um, top-up payments or COVID-era top-up payments for low-income families. It was a £20 a week payment. And according to the Legatum Institute think tank, the cut is expected to lead to 290,000 more children falling below the poverty line. That's just such a large number, isn't it? Um, And the UK already has a poor record with 3.2 million children in families below the poverty line in 2020. Exactly. Lots of people have been looking into what effect this has on health. Research shows that poorer children in the UK are more likely to have asthma and obesity and more likely to develop stomach cancer as adults. Food insecurity as a child has been linked to chronic illnesses like cardiovascular disease later in life. There were also wide-reaching other effects too. Children from poorer families are more likely to begin school with worse literacy skills and develop mental health conditions like anxiety and depression later in life. I mean, there's been so many studies about it. Uh, the poorest teenagers attend hospital accident and emergency departments, 70% more often than the richest, while children in the most deprived parts of England are four times more likely to be hit by a car than children in the wealthiest areas. Yeah, those statistics really struck me uh, in your report because, well, it's obviously awful. We kind of, I feel like we see plenty of reports saying that worse health is associated with low income. But to think like tragic accidents are are that much more connected to poverty too. It really does have wide reaching effects on families. So we know that there is this link, but do we know about the mechanisms of it? Mm. Yes. So that seems to be, that's the new thing right now. And I spoke to Jack Chomkov at Harvard University. He says a lot of it does come to poor nutrition, but new research suggests it also comes down to a lot of, to a persistently activated stress system, which has a major role in the biology of poverty. Yeah, it's awful that uh, the biology of poverty is is even a thing. 
yeah, it's essentially children who grow, grow up around parents or other caregivers who are stressed about money, even if their parents super, like, try to shield them away from it, end up growing stressed too. And Shonkov says this stress leads to a persistent elevation of inflammation, which affects the immune system, the metabolic system, cardiovascular systems. Um, and yeah, it also disrupts developing brain circuits, some of which are related to a child's ability to focus and their ability to control their impulses. So you could see that those would obviously be important for things like doing well at school. Yeah, and it's yeah, completely yeah, way harder for these children to reap the full benefits of extracurricular activities, after-school reading classes, music lessons, so many things. Now, I know there's some really fascinating experiments that have been done and that are still uh, taking place that show that look at how to alleviate poverty through cash payment. So, you know, giving low income families like a one off cash payment and that gets them off the bottom rung of the poverty ladder. And most of these have taken place in countries where there's lots of people living in extreme poverty, which the World Bank defines as living on less than one dollar ninety a day. But there are similar ones in the US, aren't there? Yeah. Um, so these neuroscientists at Columbia University in New York are studying the brains of the children of a thousand mother- mothers living in poverty. The team is giving each family a weekly check on a debit card of either $20 or $333 a month and then tracking how the children's brains develop between the ages of one and four, as well as monitoring the mother's health and stress levels too. Um, but the point is we need these sorts of study to really understand how poverty affects children and the impact that social policies can have. Next up, it's the return of our Life Form of the Week segment. Uh, what are we celebrating this week, Penny? It's an extreme echinoderm. Uh, mm. So this is a sea cucumber, to be more specific, um, which is a worm-like animal, although actually it's more closely related to us than other worms. And it's in the same animal group as starfishes. Um, and this particular sea cucumber lives in some extremely hardcore places. Uh, how hardcore are we talking about here? So this species called Chiridota hahiva lives in three really difficult spots in the ocean. So uh, hydrothermal vents, which are really hot and inhospitable, cold seeps, which are another kind of vent, um, but they're not quite as hot. They release chemicals like methane <laughs> and whale name. falls. <laughs> whale falls. Oh, they're they're amazing, aren't they? Yeah, so these are the sunken corpses of whales, which is pretty bleak. Yeah, yeah. and like the hydrothermal vents and the cold seeps, these whale carcasses have very little oxygen around and um, they're too toxic for many other organisms to survive. So how does the sea cucumber manage to to live? How How does it do it in all those places? Well, to find out, a team at Sun Yat-sen University in China have analysed its DNA and they found 27 genes that seem to have been strongly selected for by evolution. And four of those uh, are actually already known to be involved in surviving a lack of oxygen. So is that the mystery solved? It's not everything. So one question is, what are these sea cucumbers actually eating? So normally animals in extreme environments like this would have symbiotic bacteria that give them the nutrients they need. But this sea cucumber doesn't have these. So what what's it living off? 
We don't know, uh, mm. but the team have an idea. They found that the sea cucumber has seven genes for a type of protein that is usually used for immune function in echinoderms. And these animals usually have only one of these genes, if any, not seven. So these genes, uh, they normally make proteins that make holes in the outer membranes of bacteria, and that's a useful immune defense. But it probably isn't actually useful or necessary where this particular sea cucumber is living. Uh, Cold seeps, for example, don't normally have infectious bacteria. So it's just an idea. But the team think that this sea cucumber might be using these proteins rather than to attack infectious bacteria to actually digest other types of non-infectious bacteria and and live off of those. Wow, I I do love sea cucumbers. Do you know that they've got this great defense reaction if you pick one up when you're snorkeling or something um they expel some of their respiratory system out of the anus <laughs> which is quite startling yeah i remember learning that they just chuck out some of their organs out their back end when yeah. startled at, at university yeah. and although that was 15 years ago i still find it really funny and and they regenerate them though afterwards as well which is cool. oh that's cool i did not know that but i guess you'd have to um have you eaten these I have. Um, they're they're eaten quite a lot in Japan and China, and I've eaten eaten them a few times. But yeah, they're they're not my favourite echinoderm to eat at all. <laughs> there are also fish that live in the anus of sea cucumbers, aren't there? Are there, are there any that live in the, the anus of this particular sea cucumber? I don't know, Michael. You have to. Uh, Thanks for being the silent the whole time, Michael. Then you pop up with that. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on and into space, we have a story of some strange signals from space. Here to talk about it is our news editor based in the US, Chelsea White. What's going on out there, Charles? Well, uh, as they say, there's something strange in the neighborhood. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Astronomers have detected some radio signals that are coming from the direction of the center of our galaxy. And it's just not clear at all what might be emitting them. Ooh, so a good mystery. So what are they like and, and how did we find them? Well, there's been a few blips of these radio signals. So in 2020, astronomers used the Australian Square Kilometer Array, that's a radio telescope, and they saw six emissions. And then they followed that up with the Meerkat radio telescope in South Africa. And whatever's making these radio signals flared up occasionally for a few weeks at a time over about six months. And the brightness of the flares varied wildly, but then things went quiet. And so have they seen it again? Yeah. So in February this year, this object, which is called Andy's object after its discoverer, it flared up again. (laughs) Uh, I can't get over this. Uh, I mean, I love how we've got this galactic mystery. And instead of calling it, you know, something like the Alpha Quadrant Anomaly, (laughs) they call it Andy's object. Uh, Oh, let's just call it Andy's object. All right. (laughs) Uh, So can we keep analysing these signals if they keep coming? Right. So find out what it is. Yeah, sure, we can. Uh, But the team that discovered it has done that quite a bit already. They pointed some of Earth's most powerful non-radio telescopes at it, and that was to try to figure out, you know, if there's other wavelengths like X-rays or infrared coming from the same source. And they saw nothing. So that means it's not like any kind of star that we know of. Yeah, because usually these mysterious radio bursts, they're from pulsars or something, aren't they? Like some sort of Mm -hmm. rotating stellar object. So does the lack of emissions tell us anything that could help sort it out? Yeah, I mean, we think it does. So the team has ruled out normal stars and magnetars, which are these ultra-dense neutron stars with a magnetic field. But the polarization of the light that is coming from Andy's object still suggests it has a strong magnetic field. 
And the flares faded really quickly, sometimes just over a day. So that suggests it's small, but that's about all we know. Right. And there's nothing that we know of that has all these characteristics. So it, it is still a mystery, I suppose. Yeah, for now. <laughs> Here's hoping we get more uh, you know, information about it. There are some parallels with another class of mysterious cosmic objects, which are known as galactic center radio transients. And you'll like this. Uh, one of these is called the cosmic burper. <laughs> well, it's a bit better than Andy's object. Um, <laughs> but obviously it's not aliens. Uh, but while we're in space... Hey, hey, we... hey, do we know that it's not aliens? Like, <laughs> do we know for sure? <laughs> I mean, we can't know for sure, I suppose, but it's pretty unlikely, right? I, I had to ask. <laughs> <laughs> Well, while we're in space um, and we're in science fiction, we have to mention that uh, sci-fi icon William Shatner of Star Trek fame has been the latest passenger on Blue Origin's uh, latest launch into space. There is mother of Earth and comfort. And there is... Is there death? I don't know. Is that death? Is that the way death is? Whoop! And it's gone. Chase. It was so moving to me. Yeah, I'm very jealous. Yeah, I would love to go to space. And I don't want to wait until I'm 90 to do it like he did. Yeah, 90 uh, is so he's the oldest person to have gone to space or to the edge of space. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's pretty tough, isn't it for anyone and a 90 year old, especially. Yeah. And you know, there's a lot of forces on that rocket. And we don't know a whole lot about how older people will respond to that kind of travel. Because not too many have done it. Um, <laughs> you know, we talked earlier this year about Wally Funk, who's 82. Yeah. And she trained to be an astronaut back in the 1960s, who was on the first crewed commercial Blue Origin flight. But that there's only a couple data points. Um, and I just also have to point out something that Jacob, our colleague, said uh, in a very Jacobish uh, statement that William Shatner isn't the first Star Trek cast member to go to space because Scotty already went up or rather the ashes of uh, the actor James Doohan, who played him, uh, went up in on a rocket. That's all for this week. Thanks to our fantastic guests, Jason Murugesu, Michael LePage and Chelsea White. And thank you to you for listening. We're back next week. Do tell all your friends about the show and subscribe and follow us on Twitter at New Scientist Pod. And remember, you can get a discount subscription to New Scientist using the code POD20. Go to newscientist.com slash POD20 to subscribe. That's it. Bye for now. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by Oli Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.